15. So that's where we're going to pick it up uh, today. Be in Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 39, closing out the chapter. Uh, before we get into it, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word, God. We thank you for this passage. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would identify with, with you, Jesus, that we would identify with the multitudes and uh, that we would identify with the disciples, God, pray that you would just pierce our hearts, inspire us to grow and be transformed into your image. Pray that your spirit would move in this time that you would teach us in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, If you remember, uh, Matthew chapter 15, we were just discussing this story about this encounter that Jesus has with this Gentile woman, right? He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is a Gentile region, and he's there for this specific conversation with this Gentile woman. And you remember this Gentile woman, she asks Jesus to heal her daughter who's severely demon-possessed. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't. He doesn't say anything to her at first. And then she asks him again, and he responds like this in verse 24. It was not, I was not sent except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Tough love from Jesus. We discussed that. And then in verse 26, um, he said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So we see Jesus focused on ministering to this Gentile woman. She diligently pursues him and he rewards her by healing her daughter. But I love this statement by her, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So there in that last story, we saw this Gentile woman content with the breadcrumbs. And now in this section of scripture, Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 to 39, we're going to see another group of Gentiles that Jesus is actually going to provide a feast for. And what we'll see here, Mark tells us, and I'll get into it, that they're traveling. He's traveling with his disciples east of the Sea of Galilee, specifically to a region called Decapolis. So he's literally traveling east to provide a feast, which brings me to the title of this teaching, A Feast in the East. A Feast in the East. In Matthew chapter 15, picking it up in verse 29, says, Jesus departed from there, from where? From Tyre and Sidon, okay? So that's in the northwest. Then he skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. So Jesus, he departs from Tyre and Sidon, northwest, and he's gonna go, um, he's gonna go east, literally southeast, uh, to Decapolis. It's a rather large region, and this region is predominantly made up of Gentile people. See, in the last story, we just read that Jesus healed a Gentile woman's daughter. And now he's going to engage in more with more Gentiles and heal many of them. But this is interesting. This is actually a turning point, if you will, in the Lord's ministry. He was so focused on the Jews. I'll Read this again in verse 24. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
That was his primary ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we'll see as Jesus continues to be rejected by his own, as the Jewish people uh, deny and reject their rightful king, he begins ministering more to the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean that he's only focused on Gentiles now, but we just see in the scriptures that he has this time where he's primarily focused on Gentiles. And that's what's happening here in this text. Verse 29, again, uh, look at that second part. It says, he and he went up on the mountain. Now, this is a pretty far journey. We don't know where he is in Decapolis. It's a region, but this is tens of miles away from Tyre and Sidon. So he travels all this way, and then he goes up on a mountain. Think he's kind of tired? Think he's a little weary? Likely, but in the midst of the Lord's weariness, he continues to engage in ministry. And it says he sat down there. Now, he's likely not sitting to rest. When we see Jesus sit down throughout Scripture, more often than not, we don't know for sure in this text, but more often than not, he sits down to teach. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 5. I'll just give you one example. Remember, as he went on the Sermon on the Mount, he did this same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then we see the Beatitudes in this long uh, text, the longest uh, teaching of Jesus that we have recorded, Matthew 5 all the way to 7. But what's my point? Again, we don't know for sure, but Jesus comes up on this mountain and he sits down. He's likely teaching them because when Jesus sits down specifically on mountains, he often communicates the word of God. So suppose he is teaching in this setting. Why would he be teaching? Well, we'll see throughout this text, uh, he's going to provide for these people uh, physical healing and physical provision through the form of food. But Jesus, as we often see with him through the Gospels, is that he's more focused on our spiritual food than our physical food. What's the point of healing someone physically if they're going to spend eternity in hell? His emphasis is on the word of God, the gospel that saves, but he does heal and he will heal in this text to bring the people to a place of marvel that they might glorify God to really get their attention and prove to him that he is indeed God in the flesh. So we see that he often does both. And I personally personally believe in this text, that's the reason why he's sitting down. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 30, it says, Then great multitudes came to him, having with him the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So look at this. This group of multitudes are bringing the sick. They're bringing the lame, the blind, the mute to the feet of Jesus that they might be healed. This is interesting. They're not just seeking Jesus for their own gain, for bread, or for healing for themselves. They're seeking Jesus For the benefit of others. And we'll see here. Jesus actually heals them. See. God uses the faith of our. He uses our faith to bring healing to other people. Which brings me to the first of three points. Your faith can bring someone else healing. 
your faith can bring someone else healing and vice versa. Someone else's faith can bring you healing. What do I mean? Well, we see this throughout scriptures, but one of my favorite stories hitting this uh, point home is Mark chapter two, verse two. We see Jesus is teaching in this house and this house is being filled and he's communicating the word of God. And then there's this group of guys that brings their paralytic friend to the feet of Jesus. And look what happens. I'll read Mark chapter two, verse two. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them and they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they laid down, sorry, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Look at this. It doesn't say he saw the faith of the paralytic. He says their faith. Whose faith? The four men that made their way through the roof to bring the paralytic to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus probably did something that they weren't um, expecting him to do. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's probably not why they're bringing that paralytic to the feet of Jesus, but Jesus is making a point here. It's more about our spiritual healing than our physical healing. But I want to focus on this main part. He commends them for their faith. And then look what happens in verse 11. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The Lord does this amazing miracle, but he does it because of their faith. He does it because of the faith of the four men that brought this paralytic to his feet. Again, the point being that God will use our faith to bring other people healing. That's what he's doing with the multitudes. The multitudes are diligently seeking the Lord, but not for their own selfish gain. They're diligently seeking the Lord so that their friends, the ones that they care about, might be healed. That's the type of faith that's displayed both through these multitudes and through these four men that bring these par this paralytic to the feet of Jesus. It's the faith that's described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that reward, it's not always for us. Sometimes it's for the benefit of others. See, when I was a train wreck, before I came to the Lord, my mom had this specific church praying for me every day for about a decade. Praying for me every day. There wasn't any fruit for 10 years probably. But they prayed for me every day. And you know what I believe? I believe God used their faith to bring me healing. He used their faith to restore me and redeem me to get my attention. And he does that when we pray for people or when we seek people for on um, on his behalf, on their behalf. He often will act and he will bring them to a place of healing. How often 
Do you seek the Lord in his word for yourself? How often do you pray for yourself? Those things aren't bad by any means. But how often do you seek the Lord for the benefit of others? How often do you pray for others? If you looked at how much you prayed for yourself and how much you prayed for others, what would that balance look like? See, the Lord will use our diligent pursuit of him for others to bring them healing. Do you read the word in the morning? Do you do your devotions in the morning? If you don't do your devotions in the morning, it's biblical. You should start doing it. New Year's resolution, okay? But say you are one of those people that do do that, okay? How often are you seeking the Lord in the word for what he wants to say to you? I do this all the time. Most of the time that I'm seeking the Lord in the word, I'm asking God, hey, God, what do you want to speak to me? What do you want to tell me? What needs to change? What do you want to encourage me in? What have you called me to? What do you want me to focus on today? But you know what? When I shift my perspective and I seek the Lord for others, maybe I'm praying for Kevin or maybe I'm praying for Luke or maybe I'm praying for Dirk or someone in this room. And God, what do you want to tell them? Lord, is there a word that you want to give me for them? And you know what happens? More often than not, not every time, the Lord will give me a word for them. And it's like, oh my gosh, now I'm reading the word, I'm seeking the Lord for the benefit of someone else and not for myself. And we see through the word of God, he uses that and he will provide healing. He will provide restoration. He may even provide a word for us to give to them. So yes, seek the Lord for what uh, you want him to speak to you, but also seek the Lord for what he might do for someone else. And look what they do. <clears throat> Verse 30. So they take all these sick people and they laid them down at Jesus's feet. You know, someone that's sick. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's spiritually. Have you laid them at the feet of Jesus? What do you mean? How can we lay them at the feet of Jesus? I'm talking about in your heart. So often when there's people that we care about, that we love, And they're maybe spiritually sick, maybe physically sick. We have this idea in our heads that we might be able to save them. That we can do something to to help them. Now we might be able to do something to help them, but we can't save them. The Lord alone can save them. And what these people are doing, are they're surrendering their loved ones to the feet of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. We're called to surrender our loved ones to the feet of Jesus, not try to be their savior, but point them to the one, the only one that can save them. And he responds to this. He reacts to this. It says at the end of verse 30 that he healed them. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. These, this multitude is, is, is seeking the Lord, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And the Lord rewards them by bringing the people they care about healing. Verse 31. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus does these marvelous works, these wondrous works, and the people marvel. 
how can we not marvel when we consider the wondrous works of God? Consider what he's done in your life. Consider what he's done in the lives of the people you know and love. Consider what he's done in your family's life. When I think about everything that God's done in my family's life, when I first came to faith, uh, it was only my sister who was saved. And literally now my whole household is saved. And not just that, not just saved, they're diligently pursuing the Lord. My brother, he's getting his master's at Liberty. That's a Christian school. My parents, they go on more mission trips than I do. They're constantly doing these things for the Lord because of their love of the Lord. And I can't help but marvel when I look at what God is doing in this church. When I look at how many people signed up for the mission trip, I was amazed. We had like 40 people signed up for the mission trip. That's like 25% of the church. When I saw how many people came out for the outreach, over 50 people, again, I'm like marveling. That has nothing to do with me. That has everything to do with his wonderful works. He's doing these amazing things. And when I consider it, when I take a step back and look at it, I'm just in awe. I'm astonished. And that's what's happening with this multitude. They're looking at what God's doing and they can't help but marvel. Not only did they marvel, but look at the end of verse 31. It says they glorified the God of Israel. That's the purpose of the miracles, that he might bring people to a place that they're glorifying the God of Israel, that they're going, wow, oh my gosh, look at what God is doing. That's why he does so often the things that he does. Last weekend, uh, we, after the outreach, um, most Pretty much everybody came back to do a little like kind of debrief thing. I just wanted to hear from people and, and what their experience was like. And so many people said so many great things and so many awesome things uh, happened. Uh, but I have to say my favorite was Bobby. Um, Bobby, she starts sharing about uh, these people that they were praying for and these conversations that she uh, had had. And she's like, oh my gosh, it was so cool what God did. When can we do it again? When can we do it again? I'm thinking you can do it every day you want. But I was so stoked about what she said. I was like, this is what it's about. She's glorifying God because she's seeing the wondrous works that he's doing. That's what's happening here with this multitude. They're marveling, but they're also glorifying the Lord when they see what he's done. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32 Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now, first off, we see here that Jesus, he calls the disciples to himself. Jesus, in the in front of the multitudes, in the midst of the multitudes, he calls the disciples to himself. He calls the disciples to a more intimate conversation. That's why we're called to be disciples. He wants to take us from that multitude, everything that's going on, to that intimacy, to those one-on-one, heart-to-heart conversations. That's why he didn't say, go therefore and make converts. He said, go therefore and make disciples. He wants to take uh, the multitudes and transform them into disciples. He wants to take them to a deeper level. And he 
takes these disciples to a deeper level to have this intimate heart to heart conversation really about the multitudes. And again, he said, I have compassion on the multitude. I'll reread because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. It says he had compassion on the multitudes. Why? Because they followed him for three days without anything to eat. Again, they're diligently seeking the Lord. Now, this multitude, we discussed how Decapolis is a Gentile region. And we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus, like as he goes about his ministry, um, he's like picking people up and dropping people off. Like some people continue following him, other people walk away. So this multitude is likely a mix of the multitude from before that had been following him for a little while and this new multitude of Gentiles. So it's likely a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but primarily Gentiles because of the region. Now, remember the last time that Jesus fed a multitude. He fed the 5,000 in the last chapter in Matthew chapter 14. But he goes into it with more detail in John chapter 6. And we see this multitude after he had fed them, he they run around the other side of the Sea of Galilee to meet him there on the other side for a specific purpose. And what was that purpose? They wanted more food. And he calls them out on it. You're seeking me for this bread that perishes, but what you need is the bread of life. What you need is the everlasting bread. So they were really seeking Jesus for the miracles, the specific miracle of provision that they might feed their flesh. And Jesus says, no, 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 it can't be about that. I'll provide for you physically, but what you need is the spiritual provision. What you need is the bread of life. So this multitude, likely a mix of the two, They're not seeking Jesus for the bread. They're seeking Jesus. Why? First and foremost, they just want to draw near to him. And that's what he commends them for. You've been following me for three days without anything to eat. Your your heart's in the right place. You're not just following me for what you can get from me. You're following me just to follow me. But also, they're following him for what? The benefit of those who are sick. They're following him for the benefit of the others. So this multitude, they're growing in character. They're caring for others. They have compassion on others. So Jesus, he has compassion on them, not only because they're seeking him, but also because they have compassion on others, which brings me to the second point. He has compassion on the compassionate. He has compassion on the compassionate. When the God of compassion sees our hearts of compassion displayed towards others, often he'll bless that heart because it's a selfless heart. We're not seeking him for our own selfish gain. We're seeking him for the benefit of someone else. And that's a heart that mimics his heart. And again, that's a heart that's blessable. And that's exactly what he does here. He's going to bless them with food. But look at what he says. Uh, that last part, that last sentence of verse 32, it says, And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now, remember the 5,000, um, the disciples said what? <laughs> Jesus, send them away, right? They're hungry, send them away. And what did Jesus say? No, you feed them. 
And then the Gentile woman, again, she's asking for her daughter to be delivered. And what do the disciples say? Send them away. This time, Jesus doesn't even give them the option to say that. He just gets right to it. Uh, I do not want to send them away. Maybe he did this because they're not there yet. Maybe they didn't learn the lesson yet. So he's not even giving them the option to respond like that. He just says, we're not going to send this multitude away. We're going to take care of them. We're going to feed them lest they faint as they journey along the way. Matthew chapter 15, verse 33. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Seriously? Weren't you guys in the last chapter? In Matthew chapter 14, he provided for 5,000 people. Now there's 4,000 people and you're questioning where this bread is going to come from? Why would they question if he's already done it before? When faced with challenges, we often question who the Lord is too. We often doubt his character. We even doubt his ability. The very thing that God did in the past, we don't think he can do it again just because our circumstances are difficult. We have to allow challenges to remind us of who he is. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that showed up in your life in the beginning of your relationship with him is the same God that exists now. He didn't change. Our circumstances change. And when things get tough, things get difficult, we can lead into that place where we're doubting what God can do. We're doubting who he is. This is one chapter later. And they're questioning whether the Lord can provide in the wilderness. How are we going to get enough bread to provide for these people? He's already done this miracle. And this is a def- definitely a second time that he's doing it. When we're faced with challenges, we have to remember who he is. We have to remember who we're talking to. He's faithful. He's loving. He's holy. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did something in your life previously, he can do it again in the future. Anything and everything he's done in these scriptures, he can still do today. It's not like he lost some of his power. Okay, he was able to do that then, but now I don't see him doing that stuff. He's like, no, he can definitely still do these things. He doesn't change. He remains the same. Matthew chapter 15, verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So Jesus, he asks the disciples, how many loaves do you have? What do you have? What is he asking? Give me everything that you have. Give me your all and I'll multiply it. Are you giving God all that you have? Are you giving God everything? Maybe it's not loaves. Maybe it's not fish. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's effort. Maybe it's energy. Maybe it's money. I'm not saying give all your money to God. That's not what I'm saying. Just follow my heart. The thing that God is asking you to give, are you giving it to him? Or are you holding back? Are you reserving something for yourself? See, when we reserve things for ourselves, the things that we think we need, 
It's really rooted in fear. We're afraid that God, uh, if I give this away, I won't have enough for myself. If I give too much time away, then I won't have time for myself. If I give too much energy away, then I won't have energy to do this other thing that I want. I'll tell you more often than not, and I've mentioned this, this in the past, um, when I'm in the midst of weariness, when I don't have time, when I don't have energy, when I have nothing left, that's when God asks me to give a little more. What, God? If I give you all that I have, I'm not going to have anything left. What if the disciples did that? What if they say, hey, we got seven loaves and a few fish. That's for us. We're going to disperse that amongst the 12 of us. We already figured that out. We're not willing to give what we have to you. We probably wouldn't be reading the story. And they probably would have missed a miracle. And that's true for us as well. When we're not willing to give God all that we have, we'll probably miss a miracle. We'll miss what he'll do with what we do give him. And as we see here in this text, he multiplies it. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Not only is he able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think he wants to but we so often prevent him from doing that not that we can really prevent god from things but he's saying hey i want you to give me your all so i can bless you abundantly but you're not willing to give you're not willing to give me what you have so what do you expect me to do, I want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think, but I need you to give a little too. That's what happened to the rich young ruler, right? We see Jesus have this conversation with this rich young ruler and they have this dialogue about keeping the commandments and basically the rich young ruler, I've kept all the commandments uh, pertaining to people, but he doesn't bring up the ones pertaining to God. And then Jesus tells him, Sell all that you have and come follow me. And what happened? The rich young ruler says he walked away sorrowfully, immediately regretful. It's not like you're going to take what God wants you to give and walk away and be happy and walk away and be joyful. I'm going to reserve these things for myself so that I can experience more joy. No, every single time you'll walk away sorrowfully. You'll walk away regretful if he's asking you to give him something, to give him your all. It's not because he needs something from you. It's because he wants something for you. Matthew chapter 15, verse 35. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. So Jesus, again, he commands this multitude, just like the last one, to sit down because he's going to provide a feast for them. Once again, he's fulfilling scripture. We talked about this when he fed the 5,000, but in Psalm chapter 78, verse 19, it says, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And this is really an expression of what happened in Exodus where God provided uh, a feast in the wilderness. He provided manna constantly to, for the Israelites. Well, can he do it again? Jesus is fulfilling scripture. What he's saying here is what God did then, I'm still doing now. Why? Because he is God. 
He's God in the flesh. And he's proving his deity even through this act of feeding these 4,000. I want to reread that second part of verse 36. It says, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. See, Jesus, he performs the work that only he can do, but he gives the disciples the work that they can do. He only he performs the work that he can do, the miracle that only he can do. He breaks the bread, he multiplies the fish, but then he has a work for the disciples as well. Why? Because he wants to work with us, which brings me to the third point. Jesus wants to work with us. Jesus wants to work with us. Oh, wow. That landed like perfect right on the... The Lord must have like maneuvered that or not. I don't know. Jesus wants to work with us. <clears throat> he wants us to be involved with what he's doing. Yes, he's the one that's doing the work, but so often he invites us to come alongside and work with him. I hear people say <laughs> too often, probably I'm just waiting on the Lord, just waiting on the Lord. Well, waiting on the Lord doesn't always mean, it can mean it, but it doesn't always mean that I'm sit back, relaxed with my feet on the desk, just waiting for him to do something. More often than not, yeah, waiting on the Lord looks like working with him. A great example um, is in Joshua, the whole entire book. We hear the Lord say to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. The battle's the Lord's. So what does that mean? That Joshua is just supposed to sit back and watch the Lord take over Canaan. He's just supposed to fight all the battles himself. And Joshua is just sitting in the comfort of his home, just watching the Lord work. No, he comes alongside God. He fights with him. It's the Lord who's giving him favor. The battle is the Lord, but Joshua is still called to fight alongside with him. It's the same with the works of the Lord. So often the Lord, he'll do a work, but he wants us to do a work with him. In fact, scripture says that that's what we were created for. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's created us for good works. He's created us for several things, but this is one of the things he created us for good works. In fact, he's prepared these good works for us before the foundations of the earth. Well, what are these good works? I don't know the good works that he's prepared for you. We can get a general idea from scripture, but often he reveals what those good works are through the conviction of the spirit or the moving of the spirit. Good works could be, uh, hey, I want you to share the gospel with this person. I want you to tell this friend or family member, or this cashier about Jesus. Hey, I, I want you to be involved with this small group. I want you to be a part of this foundation study. I want you to pick up this piece of trash as you're walking into the church. What? Why would the Holy Spirit tell you to pick up a piece of trash? Because he's teaching you obedience. If you listen to the Spirit with the little things, you'll have a better chance to listen to the Spirit with the big things. So the Lord, he'll prepare works for you like that to pick up a piece of trash. 
And it's not about the piece of trash. It's about the act of obedience. It's about walking in the good works that he's prepared for you before the foundations of the earth. Is there a good work that God's called you to or asked you to do that you haven't done yet? Because the reality of it is, is that it's not him that's missing out on the good works. It's us that's missing out on the good works. What do I mean? Well, God is going to complete the work. He's going to fulfill his works regardless of whether we choose to be on board or not. His plan is is his plan and he's going to fulfill his plan. When we choose to not walk in the good works that he's prepared for us before the foundations of the earth, we'll usually just pick somebody else. Say, okay, you do this work. They won't do this work, so I want you to do this work. If I didn't come up here and teach, it's not like there wouldn't be a work here. God would raise up somebody else. He would pick somebody else, and someone else would be the pastor of the church. God's work will be fulfilled, and we're really the ones, again, that miss out when we choose not to walk in the good works. When we choose not to walk in the good works, just like this text, we'll often miss a miracle. The disciples, they were willing to do the work that God gave them, and they were able to see a miracle. It says, verse 37, So they all ate and were filled. Everyone ate until they were full. We're not talking about morsels and appetizers. We're talking about a full-on, full-fledged feast. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember the first multitude, the multitude of 5,000 that he fed, that was primarily Jewish people. Now we see him providing a feast for primarily Gentile people. It's a picture of another feast, a future feast, a feast that is to come. That's spoken about in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a feast one day where Jews and Gentiles come together in the name of the Lord. In fact, God refers to his people, those that accept his sacrifice as his bride. And that's why this feast is called the marriage supper of the lamb. This is a little foreshadowing of things that are to come. Not only did they eat and were filled, look at this, verse 37, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Just like the last time, they leave with more than they started with. God, again, he asks us to give him things, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. He says, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. If you're willing to give me a little, I'll bless you with so much more. Just give me a little time. Just give me a little effort. Just give me a little energy. And what you give me, I'll give you more in return. I'll multiply the very thing that you give me. And they leave with more again than they started with. Verse 38. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. So it says that there's 4,000 men besides women and children. So there's more than 4,000 people here, thousands of people. We don't know exactly how many, but I want to point out something here. The disciples, they were simply willing to do the work that God prepared. Hey, I just want you to pass out the miracle. I just want you to pass out the bread and the loaves. 
And because they were willing, God gave them the opportunity to impact thousands. When we're willing to serve God, to follow God, to walk in the work that he's prepared before the foundations of the earth, he will literally use us to do miracles in the lives of thousands. Do you want to impact thousands? All it takes is a willing heart. When we're willing to be a part of his work, he'll bless us with the opportunity to impact multitudes. And that's what he does with these disciples. And these disciples are those who ultimately turn the world upside down or right side up, but essentially change the world. Why? How? Not because they were trained, not because they were educated, not because they had it all together. They were just willing. And God will Use each and every one of you if you just have that willing heart. He'll literally use you to be a part of the miracles that he does in other people's lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this scripture, God. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us hearts to have faith in you, to not doubt you, Lord, when we're faced with challenges, but recognize what you've done in the past, you can do now, God. Whatever work you have for us as a body and as individual believers, Lord, I pray that you would communicate those works to us, that we would know what they are, Lord, and we would choose to walk in them as your spirit leads us. And in that, God, not that you owe us, but that you would bless us with the opportunity to see miracles happen in other people's lives. We love you, Jesus.